Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to owner of Spellman Performance, Les Spellman. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I am delighted to welcome today's guest, who is Les Spellman. So I've had some great guests over the last couple of months who have focused on speed. So Ken Clark, Stu McMillan, Jonas Dodu, and the list goes on. But I'm really excited to get Les on today because we're going down a slightly different route. And it's one that's been born out of my experiences speaking to these different guys, different sprint guys in the field. And what we do in this episode, I throw three hypothetical athletes at Les and just get him to talk us through his thought process about how we would deal with each one. It's these three athletes that we've all come across as coaches or all been presented with as coaches. So hopefully it'll just get you to have a little think about how you deal with that athlete straight off and then how that compares to how Les would uh, approach that. So I thought it was a really interesting idea. Hopefully it comes across well. I know Les will, well, does deliver some incredible information, but hopefully the format stacks up. But over to Les for this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Les Spellman. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Lester Spellman. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing? 
I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for giving me time and thank you for uh, taking me through the science class and getting to some <laughs> uh, some solid internet. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So where are you, where are you right now? So we have a middle school in Orange County, California. And uh, just on the other side of this wall, we got, I think, 45 or 46 students. And uh, they're going through science class with my business partner right now. So I think they're learning about dopamine today. So nice. we're, hearing, we're hearing some funny responses. If you hear anything come through the wall, it's, it's, it's that. Yeah, all good, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a, a rundown of yourself, uh, background, education, and what, what you currently do. Yeah, absolutely. Over and above, over and above middle school. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in D.C. and uh, in rural Pennsylvania. So I had two different upbringings. I had one upbringing where I was kind of in the middle of nowhere on my own. I had one upbringing that was very much in the city. Um, so I went to high school in D.C., uh, super average athlete. Um, I don't think I even made a varsity team until my junior year. Um, I had no colleges that wanted me to play any type of sport. Um, and, 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 you know, honestly, I, my mom came to me and was like, you know, I don't think, I don't think sports is for you. Like, I think you should, you should try to get a scholarship, uh, academically, but, uh, I don't, I don't think sports is for you. So growing up, I never identified as like a very, very good athlete or anything. Um, I just liked to play sports and I was really intrigued by it. When I was 17, I got in a high speed car accident and broke my femur. And in the process, when I was meeting with the doctors, they're like, Les, you're not going to be able to walk uh, normally again because the way we're putting the screws in, we had to hollow out your bone marrow. You're not going to be able to put a lot of pressure on this. So running is going to be difficult, nearly impossible, um, but walking will be difficult and painful for, for the rest of your life. So me being hard-headed at 17, um, I kind of looked at it like a challenge. So I became obsessed with, number one, learning how to walk. And... Um, that process. So went through the whole psychological battles, and spiritual battles, mental battles, finally be, being able to walk. And uh, eventually I was up to walking in the pool and then I was walking with the cane and I was walking with the walker, got up to the point where I could walk. And then I got to the point where I could go upstairs. And then I got to the point where I could jog. And then I was jogging 10 miles a day and just kept going. So within 18 months, I went from not walking, being, being in a wheelchair, to actually walking onto a Division One track team, so I walked on at Temple University, and um, like I said, growing up super average athlete, not great at anything, never ran track before in my life, and somehow ended up walking onto a Division One track team, and um, you know from there it was like okay, I I built up some speed just based on what I've been learning biomechanically and studying, but when I got to college, I was like okay, you know I I'm gonna I'm gonna get fast, I'm gonna go to college, I'm gonna get super fast because I'll be running every day. I'll be lifting. I'll be whatever. So I remember going to my strength coach and my coach and be like, okay, I want to get faster. What do I do? And they're like, get stronger, get flexible. Perfect. So I went in. I got super strong, highest back squat on the team, got super flexible. I did yoga every day. Still not fast. <laughs> so I go through my whole career at Temple, and I'm average. Again, just super average. And um, I get to the end of my career, realize, like, okay, maybe I'm not going to get that much faster. I've been studying, I've done everything right. Maybe I just had a genetic cap. And I actually ended up finding rugby at the end of my career. I put on some size, been in the weight room. Um, I was pretty much more suited for rugby at 190 pounds anyway. So I ended up playing rugby uh, a couple games, got invited out to the San Diego Training Center, Olympic Training Center. Um, 
and essentially worked out there was not very good and uh you know didn't didn't make the team but I was like you know what I love San Diego I want to try to find a way to be back out there so I went through development teams in rugby um eventually got back to the training center again wasn't good enough and then at that point I realized like I you know I, I don't know if sports is for me like that's that's just kind of where I was thinking like I had a ton of talent but I couldn't figure out how to not, how to stay healthy I couldn't figure out how to get a little bit faster and that frustration is kind of what like led me into into coaching so there was like a specific moment actually I was um invited to play for USA Falcons which is a development Olympic development team and I was on the bubble there's like 14 players invited but there's only 12 spots so I told myself if I get if I get one of those 12 spots and I play in, in this game then you know I'm going to pursue rugby and pursue sports and if I don't then I'm going to pursue coaching obviously I didn't and I went headfirst into coaching. And my main thing when I went into coaching was like, I wanted to I wanted to solve those problems. I wanted to figure out how to solve problems for the individual more so than just bring in high level athletes and let them promote my name. So I did a ton of studying, ton of research, um, got hired by the US Olympic teams, um, mostly USA Rugby to work with them before the Olympics to help them get faster. And wasn't like super high paying or anything like that, but I was able to talk to the biomechanics, the sprint coaches, the Olympic coaches, the track coaches every day and started just learning their processes on how they individualize programs um, and all that. So I got a communications degree. So most of my knowledge of, of sprinting came after and came through my issues and my struggle to try to run fast. So did that for a couple of years. We went from a really bad team in the world to top two in the world. I can't take credit for that. Um, we, we became one of the faster teams in the world, but again, can't take credit for that either. They, you know, we, we had a lot of fast guys, but I learned a ton. Uh, it was definitely mutually beneficial. I helped some guys. They helped me a ton. I learned a lot. It was good practice. Um, so that eventually led into the NFL world, which is kind of where I live now. Uh, did NFL combine training for the first time, 2017. Had three athletes. Um, all three did pretty well. Next year, I had 18. Uh, I had a pretty good success with them. The next year, I had 28. And then, you know, I started getting first-rounders. And then this past year, I had a smaller group of, of 14. But we had the number one pick, and a, a lot of – most of our guys drafted and on team. So, did that for, you know, a couple of years. And, and right now, uh, this past year, has been about building out technology and building out, um, you know, systems that we can scale and help more athletes. and and get into more athletes' living rooms with, with technology and help them. So that's kind of been my mission recently. Very interesting story. Good yeah. to hear. Love it. Yeah. Love it. How did you transition – well, not transition, I suppose, run alongside the coaching. It's obviously a business side of it to actually get athletes to you, to keep them, to develop what you have developed. And we were talking about your Instagram earlier, and that obviously feeds into all this. How's that – How's that been for you? Yeah, I, I think it was it was a lot of trial and error in the beginning and a lot of failure. Um, when I first moved to San Diego, I was sleeping in my car. And, you know, I know where to live, had no money. I was, like, printing out flyers and putting them on, on everyone's cars and hoping someone would call me. But really just, like, I, I realized, like, all I need is one athlete. So I got one athlete in, did my best job with that one athlete. That one athlete led to two more did my best job with those two just and just built it. And just honestly, it, it was about 
providing as much value to that one person, whoever's in front of me and staying in the moment that was the most valuable for me. And then using that as, you know, true, like I'm a terrible marketer, terrible at business, but I'm really good at telling the truth. So it was really easy for me to tell the truth and say, Hey, I had an athlete, you know, that was on your team and he went from A to B or guys would perform well that next season and be like, Whoa, what are you doing? And, you know, they'll be like, Oh my God, left. So, you know, I was really bad with like, you know, marketing, reaching out, all that stuff, calling people back. <laughs> that was terrible. But um, I was really good at trying hard. And at, in the beginning, I, di- I didn't know a ton. Like I wasn't, probably wasn't the greatest coach, but, you know, relationship was the most important thing to me. So I built the relationship. I gave as much effort as possible. Um, and I was able to be like, hey, I don't know the answer to that. And I would go home, study all night, come back the next day and be like, oh, I figured it out. And I just being honest with them like that, like, you know, it, it started to build. And then same with the Instagram is like, again, I have no idea what I'm doing. Half the time, I'm just like shooting it out there. And if it works, I'm like repeating that until it dies off. But I started building it um, 2014. Um, I, when Instagram first came out, and I think it was like 2011, like I got it and didn't really understand how to work it. And again, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, what works, what sticks. Um, but then just, I realized it's just storytelling. So storytelling your life and making it about other people and less about, less about you. Um, I, I feel like that, that kind of drew people to it in the beginning. And then now it's telling stories about how we're taking people and trying to change their lives through using one or two metrics that we can, we feel like we can influence in their life. So, so when you say your business partners next door teaching science, Talking about dopamine. Yeah. dopamine. What's yeah. what's the, how's this part of the business? Yeah, so this is a, a new uh, new part of the business, and, and something we really were thinking about over uh, over coronavirus, and we were just like really struggling to understand how these kids are learning and how they're improving during a time like this. Um, and we wanted, we wanted to provide more options for athletes that wanted to choose the track of being an athlete, going Division One, or trying to be professional, like what are the things they can implement starting today that um, would help them be successful? So we wrote a list down, you know, we got into meditation, got into yoga, got into holistic health and we got into reading and we got into, you know, we started listing all the things and we started listening, you know, what we could do from an athletic side of things. And we felt like there was an opportunity, um, you know, just out there in the market for athletes that wanted to focus on sports and academics but have that opportunity to develop during the day and not just be in class all day. So this is a model that we had last year through a charter school, but we had like 25 kids this year. We became a full private school and um, you know, we have almost 50 kids in it and essentially they're training. Uh, we have a very general training program. That's speed, strength, agility, conditioning, power, you know, basic performance stuff. And then we have a holistic curriculum that's, you know, we, we talk about nutrition, meditation, those types of things, grounding. Um, and then we have a academic curriculum. So all three things are concurrent, go together. Um, we have classes. So in the afternoon, they're doing their, you know, core classes like science and math, English. So my business partner, Dylan, he's my business partner with Spelman, but also with the middle school. And um, he just, he's a teacher, natural teacher, super analytical and the kids love him, so he, he's teaching science right now. Then they have history, so yeah, it's it's dope. Yeah, we love it. That's yeah. great. 
Good work. Great work. Thank you. Thank you. So just just to bring it back to the um, to the speed stuff, which obviously you're most well known for, I'd like to put a couple of scenarios to you, athletes to you that people may come across and may ring a, a bell with them uh, and try to relate it to some of their athletes or someone that turns up at their facility or um, someone that's put onto them. So yeah. firstly, a, t- a team sport athlete that has never done speed work before. And just to get your first initial thoughts and run run the, the listeners through where your head's at when that when the athlete turns up to your yeah. to your group, and then we'll just use that as a bit of a, a guide to for for some discussion if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, initially, I, I prefer the athlete that's never done any work before because they have no bias coming into it. So a lot of times, I get a high school kid that's you know super high ranked, and he comes in, he's like. You know, like my, my speed coach in seventh grade told me to be on my toes. So they're they're doing everything on their toes. And then, you know, he told me to don't move my arm past 90. So, like, sometimes there's biases they come in with. Um, when they're raw, it, it's a it's – a, it's, I love it. It's like a raw piece of clay that we're going to mold. Um, and I, I, I think that our system will teach them the things they need to learn. Um, but, yeah, when they come in, it's exciting. I love – I love when people are like, oh, I've never done it. You know, uh, I don't know what it is, you know. So I think that's the, the, the best, the best type of athlete that walks in the door for sure. How do you, how do you start to remove them potential bad habits? Like you say, I know we're talking about the, the person that hasn't done any of this before, but when people turn up and they have, how do you start to carefully pull them away from them potential bad habits or bad advice they've been given? Yeah, yeah. So, well, for, it doesn't matter if they've, they're professional, you know, or, or even lower. Like, the first thing we're going to do is profile and see, like, what, what it actually is. Because sometimes they have these they have these things that we might say are bad habits or might say are incorrect. But, you know, when we profile them, we, you know, we see their forces, horizontal force is amazing. Their power is amazing. Their velocity is super high. So it might be something that if we try to change just because we, we want them to fit into a certain technical box, we might end up undoing some of those things. We might end up changing. So like one thing I learned from Jonas is like just be very cautious about changing too many things at once, especially if it's something that this athlete's wired that way. Um, because if we unwire them, you know, we better be able to support them <laughs> through PT and through everything else that we can do to, to make them actually – take that new neural neural pathway on and um, that new skill on. So I think the, the main thing that we do is, is profiling. The second thing we do is the technical model will kind of build out um, those things. So for example, like if, if they're consistently just high on their toes and, you know, we have, we have drill patterns that we're going to start them at vertical drill patterns, like walking basic pattern and, and make sure that we're queuing those things through there. And then when, when they're running, we're just seeing, okay, does, does this skill that we're teaching them in a very technical part of the practice, does it translate over to the running? And if it does, great. If it doesn't, we just keep drilling it. And so it, you know, it may or may not, but um, we're just really cautious about undoing some of the things that the athletes have um, and, and spreading that out over more time. I think in the beginning, what I was doing was like, I think I was coaching because it was a it was a show because I was trying to get other parents that were watching to send their kid to me. So I was coaching everything. I was saying, Oh, you know, put your hand like this, do this, do that, do this, do that. It was less about the athlete, more about me at the time. 
and I overcoached him, overcoached him, overcoached him. And now I think maybe because I'm older, about to be a dad, I, I, I'm a lot more patient. So I'm looking at, number one, do their physical capabilities line up? If not, then okay, here's interventions that we're gonna we're gonna create. Uh, and number two, is the technical issues that they have is it gonna lead to injuries or decreased performance? And if it's one of those two things, obviously intervene. But if if it's their power super high, their velocity is high, force is high, and they don't look good, well, you know, <laughs> we're gonna do one percent changes, but we're you know we're not gonna undo that athlete completely. So with this hypothetical athlete, is there anything else you'd do in that profiling uh, time right at the start when these guys come through the door? Yeah, absolutely. So we're really three things. So number one, we, we love force velocity profiling and uh, horizontal profiling. Right now we're doing it off of GPS, which has been an incre- incredible project. Um, we've been working with the Data for Sports guys, Matthew Lacombe, Sebastian. Um, they, they've helped me a ton um understanding it but we've been doing force velocity profiling off gps so we're, we're pulling up their horizontal force number um their theoretical maximal velocity the ratio of force and we're looking at ratio for force like um max so we're seeing where they're at in the beginning and then we're looking at the mean <clears throat> um over a couple steps uh their peak power um their decrease in ratio of force and the slope of their um, force velocity profile so that's, that's step one. Uh, we're taking that, we're looking at the data, and we're looking for, um, you know, indicators. So low force, high velocity is, okay, that, that's easy. We'll, we'll add more force, maintain the velocity. Um, some athletes are high force, average velocity. A little bit harder to manipulate, but, um, you know, we, we can definitely, definitely influence that. So, like, we're, we're looking, number one, what are the physiological changes that we need to make and adjust, and that's more on the programming side. And the second thing we're going to do is look at their split times. Like, it's pretty simple. Um, I think a lot of people look at that first, but to, to us, that's secondary. Um, are they able to accelerate every five yards through 40? Are they able to accelerate every five yards through 30? Whatever it is, whatever it is we're testing, um, look for inconsistencies there. And then third, looking at kinematics. So I want to see their ground, con- ground contact, their air time, step length. The first zone I'm looking at is their initial excel. Um, so up to four steps, but really first two have the largest rate of change and velocity. So I want to see how they manage those first two steps in acceleration. Um, and then look at top speed as well. So is there an imbalance between contact times left and right at top speed? Um, is there an imbalance between step lengths? Um, what is their ground contact time? I guess Ken Clark said that contact times and, and top speeds are very closely linked together. So I want to see how, how well do they manage their contact time. Um, and then we'll also look at, you know, technical things. So Jordan just put out the kickback score, um, and that research was incredible. So we've been playing around with that with our middle school kids. So looking at the angle of their hip at touchdown and toe-off, adding those two together to get a composite score to see how much backside action they have. Um, if they have a high, if they have a high number, the higher the number, the better. If they have a low number, um, at the injury risk, you know, it's poor, poor um, front side mechanics as a result. Um, and then we're looking at left right imbalances, like is the left leg kicking back further than the right, things like that. So generally, that's the process and the flow we go through. Um, it sounds like a lot of time, but it's probably like ten minutes per athlete. <laughs> like, okay. it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not a lot. We have. 
we have an incredible team here. We have um, a few interns, a few staff. So an athlete comes in, it just goes down the chain. Um, we have a girl, uh, Katie, who's incredible, does all the GPS stuff for us. Then we have, you know, people doing kickback scores. So everyone has a role, and so we get it done pretty quickly. So we profile 50 middle school kids in, you know, an hour and a half. So well, it wasn't bad. So that's going to look at, uh, back to the original question, that's going to be our, our system of how we determine what the course of action is for the athlete. Um, even though we're in a group setting, there's still some individual things that we can do and influence within that group setting. So, Can you just explain the kickback score for us and how yeah. we use that? Yeah, yeah so at, at toe-off, you're, you're measuring the angle of um, how far, like the backside part of it from the hip, even with the, even with the ground, and then down to the backside leg. Um, so you're looking at that angle. So if, if the leg, for example, um, continues to drive way beyond the center of mass, um, long ground contact, number one. But number two is just going to throw your leg backside. Um, and then you're also analyzing the angle, the same, same leg angle when the other leg touches down. So if that's a, if that's a, small, a small angle, that means that the leg is still backside. It hasn't come fully frontside. Um, or it's not even. So we're essentially looking at um, lumbo-pelvic control here. So if they have poor lumbo-pelvic control, you're going to see that, that leg swing back and uh, take longer to come back to, back to the front side. So Ken Clark talks about angular velocity, um, you know, getting back to front side, uh, being able to have a high front side so you can whip that leg back down to the ground. So the kickback score allows us Number one, to look at lumbo-pelvic control, because generally the, the ones that have poor uh, lumbo-pelvic control or strength will have a, a low kickback score. So the, their, their leg is swinging back way behind. So when, they're, when their leg touches down, they have a gap between their legs, essentially. Like their leg hasn't started coming through yet. Um, so it, athletes that have a, a higher kickback score, you'll see their knees almost side by side on touchdown. Um, even the best runners will have that knee slightly in front of the stance leg. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're looking at, and, it, and we're 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 still learning. Um, and the research is out there. So, every time we, we read a new piece of research we like, we try to put it into place automatically. Sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. But this one, we're seeing a, a high correlation um, with soft tissue injuries for lower scores, and like literally we, we tested our 50 kids and. The ones that had the lowest, the lowest five had all had tough tissue, hamstring, something. Um, so there's a high correlation on that side and imbalance. If there's more than a 15% imbalance, we're we're seeing a, a way a way more. Um, we're seeing a lot more injury risk in, in people that had over 15% imbalance, even really 10. So. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, with this hypothetical team sport athlete, they've been through the profiling. You've got. Um, you, you, they're integrated in, within the group. How do you then, like you said about before, like there's, there's, there is opportunity to individualize, but within yep. a group that obviously the larger the group, the harder that becomes to individualize. How do you manage that with a with a, a potential quite big spread of experience and quality in movement quality within the spreaders yep. that you work with? Yeah. So I think there, it's kind of like a weight room. There's things that are going to be individual to the athlete, and there's things that are going to be 
just general. So like we warm up as a group, you know, we'll do a couple higher velocity runs without any resistance with the group. But then when you get to individualizing, we're really talking about individualizing um, each athlete's peak power and individualizing the load on the sled to identify where their peak power is and then assign a percentage body weight on the sled to to attack that. So like we used to do, I think everybody has done this, like we take an athlete and, and you do 10% body weight or you do 40% body weight. But it's it's essentially like if we went in the weight room and like, okay, uh, we're both going to do 50% body weight on the bench press. And it's like we're getting two different adaptations because it's not individual to the athlete's force velocity curve. So one thing about power is most athletes hit power within one second and they're basically exposed to that peak power for less than a second, a fraction of a second. So if we're just going to do body weight runs, we're only exposing our, ourselves to peak power for a fraction of a second over the course of a session. So our goal is to expose the athlete to that range for longer, longer exposure time. Um, so we want to identify what their peak power is, and then we want to identify how do we get a sled percentage body weight uh, to match that. So what we're looking at right now is that um, – 50% of their peak velocity is generally the range. Um, Cameron Joss said 48 to 52% is generally the range he works off of, and he's pretty smart, smarter than me, so I kind of <laughs> just, just use that range. Um, so 48 to 52% of that range, um, and we're saying that's, that's the loading. And then we do a load velocity profile. So we do a body weight run, a 25% body weight run, on the sled, a 50% body weight, and a 75, and sometimes 100. And then we plot that on, on the chart, and then we, we get back uh, the 50% V0, 50% max velocity. And that's a, it's a weight that we put on the sled. So if it's 100 pounds, it could be 75, could be 85% body weight, but that's individual to the athlete. So we're doing this actually with our middle school. So each of the, athlete, each of the athletes here know their percentage body weight we we you know we don't have, we're not using a 1080 although we're getting one um, shipped out here which I'm super excited about but we're just using regular sleds and then um, athletes know their number and we train on that number for two weeks and then you know we we generally deload them and then retest and then give them another number so they're pushing their peak power exposure um, higher and, and and longer and we're doing like four to six reps per week um, so that's the part where we we individualize. So we're, we're assigning them a percentage body weight um, based on based on their load velocity profile. Um, so that's where we individualize. And then everything else is, is pretty general. So we're doing general, um, you know, we're doing everything else that people do in the world. And, you know, walks, marches, skips, which is, you know, wall drills. Like, it's, it's not rocket science. It, I think it's pretty simple stuff. So. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Les. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we continue with the theme of the hypothetical athletes. So we continue with the athlete who has persistent hamstring injuries. And then we finish up with a chat around a team sport athlete who has limited time to improve. So something that's right up Les's street because that's what he deals with day in, day out. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Output Sport, a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. 
So Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid and reliable athlete assessment. So for the first time ever, you can access metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics and speed agility all with the single wearable sensor. So Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams and athletes to make data-driven decisions. So this technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at Output Sports where you can also schedule a demo. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by AthleteMonitoring.com, the world's most comprehensive, versatile and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organisations and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at AthleteMonitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive, at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They're also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com, or visit their social media channels. Do you think, and this is something that I've put to Ken, um, Jonas, probably Stu as well, and I think it was something that you mentioned at the start, I was going to mention it because it was in context then, not quite a little bit out of context now, but focusing too much on the technical model that we have in our head. I, it, was, it was when you mentioned and we were talking about um, the, the individual differences within sprinters and not removing them and being really careful because that's we, – we, we need to be careful because that's removing that may cause other issues that we don't want yeah. to present. Do, yeah. you think, do you think coaches can get too caught up in the technical model and want to change things too quickly – because they've got this in their mind that that's how it should look, that's how everyone should look. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think all of us have done it. Like, uh, I think in the beginning of your career, it's like more of an ego thing. You're trying to prove to yourself you know what you're talking about, and then you're trying to prove to everyone else that you know what you're talking about. So I always, you know, 
I'm competitive, so I wanted to be the best trainer and I wanted to be the best at this. And then you realize, like, man, I, I probably like hurt a couple of people in the past. Like, you know, it's funny. Some of these athletes are still around, and I'm like, man, remember in sixth grade I had you doing that <laughs> that overspeed drop jump to sprint with a med ball? Like, you know what I mean? So like, I was doing I was doing way too much, way too much, and in coaching. I was coaching way too many things. And I think now, um, especially dealing with our middle school population, you know, we can probably teach them one thing a week where they retain it. And, you know, at first I was teaching them five things in a session. So, yeah, I think we, we over-cue and we create a paralysis by analysis. And, you know, they start to overthink. And I did this. I've done this with combine. I've done this with guys going to pro day, going to combine in the past. And in this past year, um, what I did is our, our philosophy is based around 70% physiological changes that we were going to create and 30% technical. <clears throat> and that 30% technical was based around the start, um, a couple of KPIs, learning how to switch, um, learning proper foot contact. And then, you know, that was probably it. And then the physiological changes were, we're not going to create a ton more force. We're not going to, we're not going to take the result in force from, you know, a thousand newtons to 1200 newtons. Like, it might, but probably not. But what we can influence physiologically is we can take whatever resultant force they have and change the ratio of force from vertical to horizontal at the start, especially. And if we can take that and take their total resultant force and make it closer to 60%, you know, ratio of force horizontal, we didn't necessarily increase their force, but we increased the percentage of horizontal to vertical at the start. And there's a high correlation between a good ratio of force and a good Pmax and a good run based on based on that so that's kind of where we, we we started to understand that like the coaching part we had to let our egos die a little bit and understand like a lot of the changes that are happening are you know that it, it's science like we really can look at it and program it a certain way and the technical stuff was supported if the technical drill doesn't add more force into the ground if it doesn't help us with our ratio of force if it doesn't help us with a better contact time then it doesn't exist in our drill library. I had, I had thousands of drills. I got like a couple now that I really stick with, that really use, that I think are really helpful. You mentioned about overcuing. That's really interesting about how you've progressed and and say say less. How have you how have you forced yourself to do that? Obviously, there's maybe not the parents on the side that you need to impress anymore. But how have you got? How have you been able to just remove that from? your coaching style yeah yeah so i think i think it starts with setting the intention for the session and having the athletes understand what the goal is and then letting them kind of figure out how to how to reach that goal whichever way they do so if i say our goal today is projection and here's what i'm defining projection as and here's our key thing and then when i'm queuing i'm really focused on one or two things at at most so our entire goal coming into the session i knew what it is broke that into micro components so maybe it's torso projection or maybe it's hip projection whatever it is the whole drill set that we do that day is based around that one or two things um and then letting the athletes figure it out and then keeping them within boundaries so there's i think Stu mcmillan talks about it a lot um you know having an exploration like they're exploring into certain movements and certain things and understanding that you know they're going to take, it's going to take time to get there. Um, and, you know, and, and thankfully guys like J.B. Moran, Sam Zeno, and those guys have done a ton of the, the research on horizontal profiling. And, you know, a lot of the changes that are going to happen 
for example, stiff, you know, stiffer contacts or, you know, projection. A lot of that's going to be figured out as they increase their, their horizontal power and force. So what that's what I noticed, especially during coronavirus, when um, we had we had guys that went to the combine and then they had a break and then they went to protest. So they got done combine, the coronavirus hit, we shut down and they still had a pro day. During that time between combine and pro day, when they weren't training with me, they got better than when they were training with me. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, yeah, cool, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not gonna sit there for 17 hours a week, not, like trying to figure out what cue each athlete needs. Like, no, like we'll just give them, um, you know, the work that all these guys have done around the world and, and research, which we're super thankful for. Like, you know, that that's going to help them figure out a lot more than what I can coach them. If they have good horizontal power and good force, good velocity, they're going to run well. They're going to do well. And then we just keep them within that box, queuing-wise, one or two things here and there, and start developing out a model that they can actually stick to and remember and keep with them. I mean, I got a guy um, right now in the 49ers, a receiver, he does two drills every day. He does a switch drill. He does a dribble bleed every day. Those are his two drills that get him primed and ready. So he does his warm-up with the team, does a couple switches, does a couple dribble bleeds, and then he's got it. It gets set in his mind. This is going to help me in practice because it's going to keep me switching. It's going to keep me with a stiff contact. It's going to keep me under my hip, and he's good. So, yeah, I know that's long-winded, but... <laughs> that's great. No, 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 don't, don't apologize there. No worries at all. So sec- second hypothetical athlete that comes your way, Someone that keeps presenting with hamstring issues, what would be the first part of call for for you to uh, to attack with these guys? Yeah, no, and and this is like always a touchy subject because um, the therapist, you know, they're going to be like, "Well, that's not that's not your lane." So um, it's kind of it's it, it it could be multiple things. So is it a volume issue? Um, is it something related to the lumbopelvic control, um, or is it something physiological? physiological like is it something that's presenting in the force velocity profile for example we've seen a lot of guys that have super high velocity capabilities but have very low horizontal force um, outputs especially in the beginning um, we're seeing a lot of those guys pull up injured I don't I'm sure there's some studies out I've heard JB talk about it a little bit but we're noticing with our middle school kids the ones that are velocity based and um, not force uh, not force dominant in that in that sense. We're seeing these kids complain about you know the wellness scores every morning. They're they're more sore. They have little nagging injuries, things like that. So at first we want to figure out like what's the mechanism, like why are they why are they always getting hurt? Um, and then lastly, look at technical. So kickback score is there an imbalance? Are they extremely backside, which they probably are? Are they contacting in front of their center of mass? How far are they contacting in front of the center of mass? Um, what does their hip height look like? Is that playing a role in it? Is it a strength thing? Um, so yeah, so essentially you start there, but then generally what, what, you know, this is again, super, super, super hypothetical in general, but, um, what would, what we'll do number one is pull back on the velocity side of things. So most of the injuries that they're experiencing are from a higher velocity. So we're going to pull back and introduce a higher force. So we'll, we'll still keep the velocity part um, within the program, but we'll just reduce it by 50, 60, 70%, just expose them very minimally. Um, but we, what we've seen 
is that you can make a 10 to 20% increase in horizontal force uh, within, you know, a cycle within like four to six weeks sometimes, especially with our middle school kids. Like, oh my God, I, wait till you guys see this. <laughs> with these kids, it's, it's incredible. So we can increase their horizontal power. We can really focus on developing more power for that athlete um, and get them, get them more horizontal on the force side and still keep that velocity intact. And sometimes that, tends to work out um, some of those issues that they, they might have had at higher velocities because they're getting to that velocity through an efficient acceleration. Force and, force and acceleration are, are very, you know, they're linked. They're the same thing, essentially. So um, he, he, if the athlete can accelerate into that velocity and they're not touching on just velocity-based movements to get to that, to get to that velocity, you're going to see a little bit um, less of the soft tissue stuff. And then from there, building out the technical model, um, all of our athletes have some anterior, you know, lumbopelvic issue um, that we're trying to work out. So building the strength in that. And we were literally just talking about it earlier and yesterday. We were all looking in the mirror and we're like, man, like, we've been sitting more because of coronavirus. Like, we're all kind of slouching a little bit. Our hips are in the wrong place. So we really do drilling to practice the hip position um, and, and locking that, you know, as neutral as possible in place. And, um, sometimes what we'll see if the if the psoas and, and glute can't work together and um, keep that keep that locked in, then we start to see secondary hip flexors come into play as primary ones. We see adductive strains. We see the hamstring trying to trying to do the job as, uh, what the glute would do. Um, you know, I actually learned that from Chris Corsis, like looking into his stuff, looking at the zones and things like that. So I, again, I'm not a therapist. I can only speculate, but um, Generally, like I would, I would never do this on my own. I would always go through someone else and say, okay, well, what do you see, and then try to do my part. But it, you know, if I am doing it on my own, this is kind of the the pathway we go down. Um, we want to see physiologically where their force is at. We want to see um, technically are, are they backside, are they landing in front of their body, and then see, you know, how can we influence those things through training. From a technical point of view, how do you attack? the kickback score and improve that and this may be you may have said this already but just to kind of pull your thoughts together yeah. in this area yeah um jonas jonas has me addicted to switching like <laughs> ton, ton of switches um you know just getting the getting the hit to be the driver for movement um a lot of times when athletes first come in they you know they're really focused on distal um points like they're focused on their foot raising up or their knee raising up so our goal is really to think about as close as we can proximal to the hip. Um, that's where we want to initiate the movement. So when we're switching, we're, we're thinking about switching from the hip. And, and if you can do that while running, it's essentially what we want to do. Um, and, that, and that's what's going to help you stay front side and, and not kick back so far. Uh, and then dribbling. Dribbling is like, I mean, we're, we overdo the front side part of, part of it um, just to get them to understand like where they are in space and where their hips are and where to contact and actually how to take a dribble into a run is, is a skill. It's super hard for, for athletes at first because they all go from dribbling to just accelerating. So can we take a dribble into a high-speed run without changing our posture? Um, and, and what does that take? So like understanding understand that. Um, Cameron Josh, Josh has a great um, drill, like the med ball. You hold the med ball at the belly button, like a three-pound med ball right at the belly button, and you're trying to punch that thigh up to that ball. We started playing around with that, and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this is dope. 
So we started looking at that that type of stuff. But um, the two most transferable drills that we've used, um, vertical drills, are the switch and the dribble. Um, and then we, we look at, like, is it a postural thing? So sometimes we, we build in a little prehab before the session, just little routines to build that strength. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say those two drills. Sure. I probably should have asked you this ages ago. Just very briefly, just explain to us the switch and the, and the dribble, just to paint a picture in the in the minds of people that may call them something else, may have not heard of them. Oh yeah, just paint sure. that picture. Paint that picture. Yeah. yeah so a, a switch drill is, is essentially teaching the athlete how to switch the legs at the same time simultaneously. So um, we one leg is on the ground, and we like to go flat foot contact. Um, hip hip as high as possible. The other leg is, is fully is, is fully up, and then we want to switch at the same time. So what happens is athletes will go, they'll drop one before they switch. So what we want to do is, if this is the top leg, we want to switch at the same time and have both legs move at the same time and pass each other um, mid stance. And if we if we can accomplish that, then you can under you understand how um, we want the body to work while we're while we're sprinting. And then the dribble. Um, I don't know where the name dribble came from. It, Dan, I don't know, somebody. But I, the analogy I use with the middle scores is like, I think about a basketball. I think about if I bounce it soft, I get a soft response. Soft response. If I bounce it a little harder, it comes up a little higher. If I bounce it hard, it bounces high. So I try to get them to understand that the knee height part, the hip height, is more about the bounce off the ground, the reaction off the ground. Sometimes I have to flip it for athletes that do that super well, but most of them it's about the bounce off the ground versus just lifting the thigh in the air, lifting the thigh in the air. So it's it's two things for us. It's about the leg recovery and it's about the contact point. So like we start off the dribble um, over the ankle. So we're stepping essentially over the ankle. Contact 85% of the foot or flat on the ground and we're trying to bounce off. So the foot, we want the foot to land as close as we can under the hip and then bounce. So our legs are essentially switching in a cyclical pattern. Um, we don't we don't cue like cycle your leg or anything like that. We just think about attack the foot down to the ground, bounce up, and just be bouncy. So I mean, there's a, there's a million different ways to do it. Um, we start off dribbling hands on the hips for you know just slow and controlled. And then we go we progress to like speed dribbles where you're essentially running as fast as you can over the ankle, over the calf, over the knee. So we generally go ankle, then calf, then knee. Um, and then a bleed, and sometimes we go straight leg bound to a bleed. So just depending on what the focus is and what the level is, um, we'll do a couple different variations of it. But, yeah, super simple drill to do. Like, you can learn it pretty quickly, and you could, you could get a volume of um, similar ground contact times as you would the top speed sprinting without the actual um, stress of running at top speed. So it's a really safe way. Um, in general, we, we do dribbles before any top speed session just to get them primed and cued and thinking and thinking that's where their power comes from is to strike down from the, from the top versus uh, trying to swing the leg through really fast or reach out or anything like that. So it's a really easy drill to, um, to progress and to wicked for, you know, running over cones or hurdles or anything like that. But it's, it's kind of the base of our max velocity drill pattern. Sweet. Brilliant. Last but not least last hypothetical athlete the the athlete that comes to you with not much time which may be 
pretty almost um Everybody. yeah well renowned <laughs> yeah everyone <laughs> exactly yeah. so with the, with those guys who've got a super short period of time with you and they want to maximize your knowledge experience to uh to improve improve themselves where's the where's the first place that you start yeah um i like the scenario is literally everybody in my world yeah. because yeah. um i'm not full-time with a team or anything so i, I generally see people in the off season and what what um, type of what type of turnaround are these guys having is it is it weeks like is it a month six, six to eight six to eight weeks is okay. generally like what we see most um so again it's hard like if it, let's say we want to develop more force for the athlete um you're not gonna you're not gonna move the needle a, a ton on resultant force you're not gonna move the needle a ton on velocity but what we can do is that we can look at the athlete and say okay for example you hit 22 miles per hour but it's taking you five and a half seconds to get there so what we can say is to the athletes we, we want to be able to access that speed sooner for your position let's say it's a running back um, it doesn't move the needle for you to run 22 miles per hour, but it takes you five and a half seconds to get there. So what's more realistic is we can get that under, you know, around four, somewhere around there. So that's kind of what the feedback would be to the athlete. But what we would, what we do is essentially most of the athletes that we have, we're, we're looking at the horizontal force side of the equation. Um, we can influence in a short amount of time, the ratio of force, like I said earlier, if, if they're at 45%, uh, ratio of force, horizontal to vertical, our goal is to push them more. So we're not necessarily going to change our result in force, but if we can do um, heavy sleds, if we can do drills based around this, and we can increase their power horizontally, then it's going to pay dividends. It's going to have them run faster. So we've seen a couple guys that had 10 to 12% increases in force, but maintain their velocity. We saw about 0.15 to 0.2 second difference in split times over 40 yards within four weeks um and this and this is fully automated and i know there's and we, we can go down a rabbit hole of talking about different testing metrics but there's you know some guys test on fully automated then test hand time and say they got two tenths of a second faster probably not it's probably the same but this is the same testing metrics both times um so we've seen a, a what we've noticed is like sometimes we're not really going to move the needle too much on velocity. I, I think if you have time, like I, I saw Matt Rea was pushing guys two and a half miles per hour faster over, over time, which is incredible. Um, but in six weeks, you're not going to move the needle much. <laughs> so what you can do, you can really attack the acceleration. You can get them an efficient early acceleration and late acceleration through, um, through specific training, like force development training um, on sleds, heavy sleds, you know, resisted bounds, things like that. Um, and that's going to move the needle because there's going to be adaptation from those things. Um, a lot of times I see optimal, like, well, actually, no, let me not say that. In the past, I would, I would pick an optimal training thing that I think would work. But if we're, in order for that athlete to adapt from the training that I did, it would take them a full year of that type of training. So, you know, when we're doing very, very, very technical stuff, this is how your hands should be, this is how... You know, it, it took for it would take forever for them to to get that pattern. So, what we've seen, you know, help a lot is, is JB's research, um, horizontal profiling, and then assigning them a sled that matches up with their weak points, and then just attacking that. So, yeah, we we saw this year our our overall improvement was like 0.328, but you can probably throw that out because 
some of them were hand time, some of them were hand laser, but you know, generally like two tenths of a second in, in five, six weeks and uh, 10 to 15% increase in power. That's kind of the outcome you'd see. I'm just interested to know what's next. What's next yeah. for you? Just get, you've gone from a, like a, a small group, then the, the numbers have gone up, obviously for, for volume, then you've come down again for, for quality. So what's what's next for the for you and the, the group and the team and the business? Where are you going? Yeah, I think the next the next chapter is, is really helping more people on the lowest hanging fruit. So we want to find a solution for athletes to all learn um, and, and not let price be a barrier. So finding you know, easy solutions for athletes to tap into, whether it's app or camp-based or clinic-based, uh, that's one level. The second level is we really want to get into helping teams track their data on speed. And I know speed has been such a touchy subject with teams because they don't want to run guys, um, you know, have, have velocity-based injuries or anything like that. But I think there's some innovative ways that, are, that more look like special strength um, than, than actual sprinting that we can implement speed into team environments, professional all the way down to high school level. Um, and I think it's a super important thing as, as we see now in the research that force, um, the force decrement over the course of the season is, is pretty large. You'll, you'll see athletes drop 10, 15% over the course of the season. And, it, you know, while maintaining a similar velocity, which is exposing them to risks that you know, they shouldn't be exposed to. And there's easy ways to keep that going. Uh, it's the same thing that they do in the weight room, keeping the, the force going vertically. Um, we're just talking about horizontally. And um, being able to track that on GPS and, and get force velocity profiles of GPS and translate that to groups and then translate that to individual changes that each athlete can do either on their own or with you know their team. I think that's, in, that, I think that's the future of, um, of where we're going, sprint-based training for teams. And then um, – and being a dad, I'm trying to, you know, trying to be the best dad possible. <laughs> that's, when's the that's, when's the baby due? Um, probably like a, a week from now. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. I'm, I'm glad we got it in because there will be no chance <laughs> after next week. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Seriously. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So. That's we, the future. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds super exciting. And we've mentioned the Instagram account where where can people get in touch is that the best way for people to see your work get in touch see what you're doing yeah spellman performance is the instagram um i just figured out this linkedin thing it's super cool okay. <laughs> <laughs> so i think my name is just on linkedin um yeah. i got a, i got a youtube channel so if you guys want to see like the middle school and everything we're doing it's all on my youtube channel uh Les spellman search it on on youtube twitter is less seven spellman um what am i missing Snapchat? I don't think I have Snapchat. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah, Twitter, Instagram, yeah, LinkedIn, plenty of places people can find you. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate the hour that I've had with you, Les, and uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to finally catch up and have a chat and yeah, uh, keep doing you. what you're doing, smashing it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Pleasure. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Les. So big thanks to him for giving up his time. He's a very busy man all the time, having to cancel phone calls with agents throughout the podcast who want his attention. So really appreciate him coming on and giving up his time. Also, big thanks to today's sponsors. Really appreciate their support. Could not happen without these guys. 
So if you are interested in any of their products, firstly feel free to reach out to me to get a recommendation or learn more about the, uh, the people behind the product and um, definitely check them out if you're in the market for any of their products. So thank you again for your support and I'll chat to you next week.